Hello and welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Media and Technical Director here at Bayside. This week we are discussing with Pastor Dave Ritter our new series on 1 Timothy. This is called The Apprentice, and we will be in chapters 1, verses 1 through 11. We hope you enjoy our discussion today. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, This week we are discussing 1 Timothy our new sermon series called The Apprentice, a study of First Timothy. Let me just read real quick the, uh, the statement that we, that we prepare about each sermon series. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy, a young pastor and his child in the faith, to advise him how to go about his ministry assignment in the church at Ephesus. From it, we have much to learn about how to do life together as followers of Christ in a local church. So as we begin, we've got some questions from congregation. Let's get started there. You had made a point in the sermon about speculative teaching, and so this is a question there. Uh, Speculative teaching is rampant, if not officially, at least in informal settings, and can take you by surprise. How should we handle it when we encounter it in different settings? Yeah, okay, so just a little background in terms of connection to the sermon. Uh, So the basic idea of the sermon was that here's Paul saying to Timothy, um, I've left you behind in Ephesus in in order to instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine. And it's clear that Paul is saying he wants the folks at Ephesus to be focused on the gospel and not to be wandering off into speculative teaching and legalistic teaching, the the two things that seem to be happening at Ephesus that needed correction. Um, So speculative teaching, uh, I would define as any kind of teaching that wanders off, uh, uh, it it goes farther afield from Scripture than the Scriptures themselves speak. In other words, it's, it's it's wanting to fill in the blanks where Scripture is silent or it's it's speculating about things that scripture just doesn't address um and so th- this can happen uh, frequently um you know i've i've heard all kinds of speculation and down through the years of different kinds of things uh every easter there's this thing that goes around about um about lambs being being wrapped in linen and you know it's it's a very heartwarming interesting little ditty but uh, you know the scripture is silent about that it doesn't scripture doesn't say that's what was happening um you know at at uh, when it came to the burial cloths of jesus and stuff so i i would be careful of those kinds of things myself i and, and people raise those kind of things in conversation hey i heard this and, and I'll say, well, that's that's interesting, but uh, I don't think we can support that from Scripture. And that's that's kind of the, the standard line I would give, is to say, well, that's kind of interesting uh, things to think about. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know where you'd find that support for that in Scripture, but, uh, you know, and, and my, my intent in saying that is not to, you know, bash their heartwarming story that they came up with on Facebook, but rather to, to direct them back to scripture and say, you know, you know, we just we just need to be careful about uh, saying more than scripture itself says. And, and I think that can be 
that can be kind of a, a kind but but um, firm response of say you know that's, that's interesting stuff but you know I don't think we can support that definitively from scripture. So one of the examples uh, is the Creation Museum and the Ark that is in Kentucky. Uh, it's built by Answers in Genesis, and uh, I've visited, many people have visited. I've been uh, there myself, yeah. And um, inside they have animals that are kinds. That's how they define it. It's not just specific animals that they believe were in existence, but different kinds, family groups, if you will, um, that, and those animals don't appear in the pages of Scripture. Would you count that as speculative? Yeah, I probably would. I mean, I think I think what's happening there with the the Ark Encounter, and even the Creation Museum, not so far away from there, is that they're they're attempting to show scientific plausibility for things that are in the Scripture, and they're you know from a scientific point of view, they're they're trying to help the Bible out and fill in the blanks, and 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 I and for one. From one standpoint, I don't have a problem with it if, if we can look at that and say, uh, this is an attempt on the part of believing scientists to explain things that, that you know, might seem implausible, but they're, they're trying from a scientific standpoint to show uh, some plausibility to it. Uh, I, I, I would say, I would go so far as to say, you know, that's interesting uh, to think about from a scientific point of view. But my faith doesn't hang on it. I mean, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Um, uh, my my faith isn't going to be dashed if that turns out to be bad science, or if they turn out to be wrong. Uh, I I tend to have a pretty simple faith, and I take the scriptures at face value, and and I I don't let myself get bothered by such things as how do they fit all those animals in the ark? Um, God can do whatever He wants to do, whenever He wants to do it. So. Did, did he choose to do it the way the Ark Encounter uh, suggests? Maybe. Uh, but, you know, let's not make that a test of faith or, or to say, hey, if you don't believe what they're saying in the Ark Encounter or at the Creation Museum, then you're not a true believer. That that That's where I think you cross the yeah, line. Yeah, that is, yeah. Thank you. All right, and finally, uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, we are all legalists at heart. Um, and, you know, most people who are familiar with legalism really do hate it. Um, how do we keep our hearts from drifting towards those natural inclinations of legalism and train them in grace? Well, uh, you know, I think Sinclair Ferguson is correct in, in that uh, we're all legalists at heart because we're all sinners. Uh, you know, we, we're born with a sinful nature, and, and the very nature of sin is to, uh, you know, want first place, <laughs> to say, uh, you know, it's all about me. And so when it comes to uh, justifying myself before God, the natural inclination of the heart is to say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I can do this. Uh, you know, I'm better than most people. Uh, but of course, we know the futility of that because the scripture says there's no one righteous, not even one. All, all of our most righteous acts are like filthy rags uh, in the sight of a holy God. And so um, I think the way we keep from from uh, you know constantly falling back into legalism is to keep you know being refreshed in the truth of the gospel uh, you know I, I've been a believer for over 60 years and and I am amazed at how I continually learn new things about about the depth of God's grace in my life and how much I need it and how utterly dependent I am for 
for my righteousness, my salvation, uh, my walk with Christ, uh, that I, you know, to this day, I can't do it in my own strength or commend myself to God. Um, and so to live, to live in in a, an awareness of the the vastness of God's grace displayed through the cross and 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 Jesus resurrection life given for me not just his death for me but his life for me uh and and to to learn more and more how to live in the truth of of uh, that the the gospel and to live in the power of the holy spirit uh you know to me that's that's the only the only way to keep from falling back into legalism because you know, in our in our flesh, we're always going to want to think we're pretty great, um, and we're always going to want to think that, well, God's pretty lucky to have me on His side, you know, um, and and it's only it's only by continually going back to the fundamentals of the gospel that we we keep all that in check and and remember to live in in grace and not under law. All right, as we turn to the discussion points for this week. Uh, your first question was, uh, who was Timothy to Paul? And you, you listed three scripture verses, uh, Acts 16, uh, 1 Timothy, and then Philippians. And, and essentially, he, Paul, you know, he's my child in the faith. This is the one whom I love. I entrust all this to you. Yeah, so, you know, Timothy and Paul had, had a long history. By the time Paul writes this particular letter to him, uh, going back probably by the date of this letter, probably 17 years or so. And uh, it, it began when Paul was on his first missionary journey and passed through Lystra, a city in Asia Minor, preached the gospel. And it's likely that Timothy became a believer as a, as a result of Paul's ministry because Paul calls him my son in the faith. Um, second missionary journey, Paul comes through again a couple years later, two, three years later, and Timothy has grown so much, the believers are bragging about him, and Paul says, wow, uh, let's take him along and, and, and as an apprentice, as a helper. And then for the next 17 years, uh, you know, Timothy's traveling with Paul. He's helping Paul. He's being sent by Paul different places to troubleshoot situations. He becomes a very trusted companion, uh, almost an associate uh, apostle of Paul. Uh, and, and Timothy ends up, for this period of time, pastoring the church at Ephesus in Paul's stead to uh, straighten out some things that kind of gotten off kilter. Uh, in Philippians in particular, it's it's really endearing because Paul is bragging about Timothy to the Philippian believers and says, I have no one like him. And um, and it's, it's, it's very clear that Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship, uh, like a spiritual father, spiritual son, uh, mentor, mentee, um, you know, apprenticeship kind of relationship. And uh, Timothy, I mean, what an amazing mentor to have, right? right. <laughs> the Apostle Paul. So, yeah, very close relationship. So your second discussion point, why did Paul leave Timothy behind in Ephesus? And uh, we see in uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 uh, that he was there to fight against and keep out false teaching, which seems to be a reoccurring theme in all of Paul's letter is Paul comes to town, preaches the gospel, establishes things, and the false teachers come in shortly thereafter as if they're following him. 
Yeah, I mean, we just came off a series in Jude that was about the same thing, uh, you know, warning against false teachers in the church. And and Paul, in many of his letters, warns about false teachers of various kinds. Uh, specifically here in in Ephesus, it, it seems to be, you know, the speculative, legalistic kind of teaching. And I mentioned in, in the sermon that some some scholars, and I don't want to be knows this for sure, but it's an example of the kind of speculative teaching that was going on in the first century was this document called the Book of Jubilees that that was very popular among Jews, and um, it, it kind of established an angelology for ranks of angels that went beyond what the, the inspired scriptures teach. It, it uh, tried to fill in the blanks, uh, you know, kind of the common questions that people always have about Genesis. Where did Cain and Abel get their wives? Well, Jubilees has an answer for that, and and uh, you know Jubilees tries to explain Genesis six uh, and the whole episode of the daughters of men and the sons of God uh, by purporting that 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 was about angels having relations with human women, leading to a race of giants that that were destroyed in the flood. Um, you know, all all kinds of speculation that uh, that the book of jubilees entered into now whether they were studying the book of jubilees or there's other and there are all other kinds of speculative sorts of things going on in judaism at the time uh, having to do with genealogies and and you know who are all these people in the genealogies in scripture and 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 whatnot and myths uh, paul talks about myths in various places um whether it was jubilees or some other teaching it was something of that nature where in essence, they were they were getting deep into speculation about things that the scriptures were really silent about. If the scriptures are silent on something, I think there's a reason for that, and we should probably just let it alone. <laughs> We've got our hands full just dealing with the things the scriptures actually do teach. So let's keep focused on 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 the the things that are are plain in scripture, and and not go on all these rabbit trails uh, that you know people even down to this day are are uh, inclined to to take rabbit trails and and be fascinated about things other than what the scriptures are clearly teaching. Your third discussion point, Paul pointed out, and he's essentially urging Timothy to keep the people of Ephesus focused on the gospel and to urge them not to teach any different doctrine. Uh, what, according to Paul, is the gospel that is to be preached? And uh, you listed 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read that. Uh, this is the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, there's a say, saying that I heard uh, discussed when we were studying Daniel, keep the plain things the main things, and keep the main things the plain things. Is that? Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, always good counsel, especially when it comes to, you know, what should the church be focused on? Right. And, and um in particular, Paul couldn't be plainer than than he is in First Corinthians fifteen, 
This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, it's interesting to me how many times in the last month or six weeks this reference has come up. In fact, it was a focal point of my sermon on Easter Sunday uh, because essentially what, what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 53, the last part of Isaiah 53, um, you know, Paul Paul basically gives the outline of Isaiah 53 in, in that three-part um, explanation of the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Well, Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would die for our sins. He was buried. Isaiah 53 says that he would be buried with a rich man in his death. Uh, he was raised from the dead. Uh, Isaiah 53 talks about how uh, he will yet live to see his offspring. Uh, and and so, um, you know, that's the heart of the gospel. Uh, as predicted in the Old Testament and as explained in the New Testament. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so when, when Paul in verse 11 talks about you know, my gospel, this blessed hope, and, and, and everything else he says about it in verse 11, it's clear that, that he's, he's talking about this. Um, you know, as Paul defines the gospel, it's Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, sometimes it can be hard to keep focused on the gospel. There are a lot of temptations to get distracted into building our kingdom here. And sometimes it's with the best of intentions. We have activities we have things going on at the church that we're, we're trying to to draw more people in we're trying to be community focused we're trying to do 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 but then we get caught up in what might, some might call entropy and it collapses on itself because we're not focused on the gospel well i think yeah i think that's always a danger in churches is that we think we're doing uh, the lord's work because we're busy you know, we've got a lot of activities. We're Martha. Yeah, right. Uh, we're, we're Martha rather than Mary. Uh, but I, th I think that one, one thing that a busy church always needs to be asking is the question of how does this serve the gospel? How does this serve helping people understand better who Jesus is, what Jesus did for them, and, and the life that is ours in Christ? Um, so, for instance, you know, we have a, a fall fest. And... You have fifteen hundred, two thousand people come through here on on a fall fest day, um, and it looks like a lot of activity for the sake of activity, but it's not. Uh, there's two things happening at fall fest that I think are very gospel directed. One is people are getting exposed to Bayside and getting a feel for this is a church that cares about children. Maybe I should I should check this out. Bring my kids here uh, on a Sunday, and um, and we have always have people visiting. Bayside in the weeks immediately following Fall Fest, immediately following Vacation Bible School, uh, and uh, and whole families end up staying and and uh, having we have more of an opportunity to expose them to a got the gospel. The other thing that happens directly on Fall Fest uh, Saturday is there is always a gospel presentation tent where there's there are uh, people who really get the gospel and and they share the gospel while helping. Uh, children do a craft, and their parents are listening in while this is all, all going on. Uh, so there's always there's always a direct presentation of the gospel, and then there's the invitation uh, to to come back and and hear the gospel. So I think we always have to be evaluating. Um, you know, are are we doing this just to you know have an impressive activity, or is there 
is there a gospel agenda that is is really being driven along here by our putting in all this effort? To our fourth point in the discussion, <clears throat> Paul warned of two tendencies of the Ephesian teachers. One is the speculative teaching, according to verse 4. What does this kind of teaching lead to, according to verses 5 and 6? What kinds of speculative topics are people today likely to argue over? Uh, now, verse 4 also reminds us that there needs to be a stewardship of the gospel. The, the Greek word here is also translated as administration. It means to manage the household. We are here to look after the affairs of the church as God sees fit. And verse 5 points out that the whole point of the gospel is to love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. And these are qualities of good church leadership, which Paul will get into later in the letter. That's fun to say, later in the letter. Uh, but back to the question, what are people today likely to argue over? And I think it's more like, what are we likely not to argue over? Because it's, we argue over everything. Uh, in the Midwest, it's, it's very easy to find communities that have a, a different Baptist church on every block because they've parceled one sentence this way, and so they can't all meet together and arguing over little things. But it all comes back to that lack of love from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Yeah, and I think that's that's the 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 key indicator, right? If we're keeping focused on the gospel, if we're handling that stewardship well, that gospel entrusted to us, then it's going to result in things like love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Um, you know, as as we were saying before. It, the deeper I go into the gospel, uh, the less likely I am to fuss over little things because I'm keeping focused on the most important thing. I'm, I'm learning more and more all the time of the vastness of God's love for me in Christ. And, and if Jesus says, uh, you know, love each other as I've loved you, well, then... Um, you know, that's going to be evident in the way I, I treat the people around me, the way I see them. I'm not looking at you as, as, you know, an opponent to argue with, but I'm looking at you as someone made in God's image that I should love and care for in Christ. And, and so I think gospel-oriented people, grace-oriented people, are people who, who, you know, genuinely manifest love. As we, as we get into more speculative areas, um, where, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't speak clearly and directly about it, but we try to make it say things that, that it doesn't actually say, or we use it to support pet viewpoints that, you know, reinforce our particular political persuasion. That's not to say the scriptures don't speak to our politics. They, they should, but make sure that the scriptures are speaking your politics and not your politics speaking to the scripture. And that's where we get into trouble, is where we try to read back into the scripture, you know, our own, our own views, whether uh, political or, or economic or, you know, everything from who's the Antichrist and, uh, you know, were aliens, uh, you know, on, on this planet centuries ago. And is that what the Bible's talking about when it talks about angels? I mean, there are all kinds of weird things that people get, get all off track on these days. 
uh, speculating over. And, and I think, you know, I know, I know that there's sometimes people want us to be more political from the pulpit, but only from a certain point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just aren't going to go there. Uh, you know, why? Well, because we're only going to tell you from the pulpit what we can see clearly in the scriptures. Now, if we see something happen, happening in, in, in government that we think is off base, yeah, I don't have a problem saying that. But I'm not saying it from a political standpoint. I'm saying it from... The standpoint of the scriptures speaking truth to power, <laughs> so you know, um, I, I I think it's deplorable when you have you have um, you know uh, you have government, for instance, um, f- fighting for abortion and 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 people in high places in government bashing people who have a conscience when it comes to abortion, or you find. You know, uh, uh, governments uh, advocating for uh, for LGBTQ stuff, uh, redefining marriage. The church should be speaking to those things, and we do. But but there are other ways. You know, we're not we're not going to get involved in in in, um, in speculation about uh, you, you know. Um, Who's who's really running the country, and what cabal is is behind that, and how are they in league with Antichrist? I, I know that there are people that are fascinated with that kind of stuff. We're just not going to go there because if it's not in the scriptures, if it's not clearly taught in the Word of God, uh, you're not going to hear it from our pulpit. In our final discussion point, according to Paul in verse seven, the other tendency of the Ephesian teachers was legalism. According to Paul, what is the right use of the law? Yeah, the right use of the law is to show us our sin, right? And and not 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 those who are already uh, made just in Christ. He says it's not for the just; it's for for those who are far from God. And and he, then he gives this whole list of of sins, um, you know, that are indicative of of those who are far from God. And it's basically a recitation of the Ten Commandments uh, in some of its more extreme violations. Um, and so I, I think the important thing for us to remember is that um, there are a lot of a lot of churches where the message is Jesus loves you, He gave His life for you, He died for your sins. Come to faith in Jesus. Okay, now you're now you're a, a Christian. Now you're a follower of Jesus. Now here's the law. Here are the rules, and you better keep these rules, or we're going to shame you, or we're you know you're going to be in big trouble. And so try real hard to be a good little Christian now. And that's where it really gets off the rails. And, and so easily, so it's so easy to fall into that because it just seems the natural thing to do for a pastor to try and keep his people in line by beating them over the head with law. When Paul says, no, uh, the law is for those who are, who are not yet made righteous in Christ. It's to convict them of their sin. It's to, it's to help them understand how much they need the gospel, how much they need Jesus, how far they are from God. So then the question becomes as well, then Christians don't need to pay attention to the Ten Commandments? No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that as a believer in Christ, I'm going to, I'm more likely to keep the Ten Commandments because I'm I'm living in the righteousness of Christ and and in the power of his spirit. There's there's a, a there's a want to that wasn't there before. Uh, there's an ability that wasn't there before. The, the law can't do that 
for me. Uh, you're not going to make me a good little Christian by telling me all the time, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. You're going to help me be a better Christian by pointing me to the Savior and, and reminding me of the resources that are available to me in Christ to live a beautiful life in the likeness of Jesus. Um, so so in, in, a, in a grace-filled church, are you going to hear the law? Well, sure, you're going to hear the law because it's in the Scripture. Uh, but hopefully you're going to hear the law rightly applied to say this, this is what helps us see how very much we need Jesus. And when we're in Christ, these are the things that our new life in Christ helps us to avoid. We don't, we don't go on living in those things anymore because it's not who we are anymore. Our identity is not, uh, you know, a sinner who can't help himself. Our identity is one who's been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ to, to walk in good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Um, and and, and I, I, know, I know the difference uh, between a grace-filled church and a legalistic church because I've, I've been in both. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I can tell you, living in a legalistic church can be a pretty miserable place um, <clears throat> where you always are looking over your shoulder to see who's judging me now and um, what, what am I going to get slammed for. Um, and if I, if I don't agree with the powers that be, uh, you know, on every jot and tittle of what's right or wrong or what's appropriate for a Christian or what's not, uh, then, then I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, you know, uh, I'm going to be brought up before the elders or somebody's going to yell at me because I'm not towing the line. Right. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a terrible way to live the Christian life. Um, just a little testimony. I, I, I've shared this before, but I was raised in a legalistic church where it seemed like, um, you know, we were proud of the fact that we weren't worldly, like like the people in the church across the street who might have a little wine with their dinner or smoke a cigar now and then. Um, you know, we, we didn't smoke, we didn't chew, we didn't go with them who do. You know, I mean, we had we had umpteen number of, of ways to justify how righteous we were as compared to everybody else. But man, I'll tell you, the second you stepped out of line, there was no help. There was, there was only judgment and there was shame and there was rebuke. Uh, we went from there for various reasons. My parents took us to a different church where the teaching was much more grace-oriented and the objective was not to toe the line and behave like a good little Christian should. The objective was to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And it's like, wow, I can do that? And, and the teaching was oriented around, yeah, this is what God has done for you in Christ, and, and here's the provision that's made for you that you can live a new life in Christ. And you know what? All those, all those questions about what can a Christian do almost, almost went away because a lot of the things that were on the checklist in the legalistic church were, were things that I was no longer interested in anyway as a, as a true follower of Christ. Um, and then there were some other things that were on that list that I fig- I've kind of discovered, you know what, the Bible doesn't actually speak to those things. I could, I could probably participate and, and not feel guilty about them. So it's, it's, it's just a night and day difference between living in a, in a legalistic environment and living in a grace-filled one. In, in verse 7, Paul here is criticizing these would-be teachers of the law. And in order to lend credit to any criticism given, the source must be qualified. 
Uh, you know, think about the judges on popular TV competition shows, the, the talent shows, the <laughs> dancing shows, cooking shows, even Shark Tank. You wouldn't have a poor guy on Shark Tank. To have Paul say that these people don't understand the law means something. Uh, can you remind us what Paul's training under the law was? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a Pharisee. So he, he had the strictest training that you could have in terms of, of, you know, being a legalist. The Pharisees were sticklers for the law. And, um, and, and yet Paul came to understand the futility of that. And, and in Romans 6 and 7 in particular, he talks about that at, and 8, he talks about that in great detail. That, um, you know, try, try as hard as I might, I can't do what the law tells me to do. The law, the law is like this, this outside standard that, that I'm held up to and I fall impossibly short and I always just feel guilty. And, and basically, Paul came to understand, well, yeah, that's the whole point. The point is to show you your guilt before God so that you'll recognize your helplessness, that you'll never measure up on your own, and to show you how much you need Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Uh, the one who gave his life for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have new life in him. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, Paul, did, Paul himself did a, a total... 180 on that issue. He 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 went from being, uh, you know, the chief of legalists to being one who who became the the greatest proponent of of living by faith in God's grace and and helping us understand the difference. It it's, it really took somebody of Paul's background, I think, to to be able to write the theology that helps us appreciate the difference between trying to live up to the law and, and living in the power of grace. Now to reiterate what verse 8 says, and what, as we discussed, uh, now we know that the law is good. And it's good because of whom the law came from. It, it's, it's the same reason that I tell my daughters that today will be a good day because God is good and he made today. Yeah, it, the, the law is, is God's law. So you, you can't say that there's anything wrong with the law. There, there's right ways and wrong ways of using the law. And, and that's what Paul is objecting to here, um, is those who use the law wrongly. He says that the law is good as, used, as long as you use it lawfully. That, and that's kind of a play on words there. Uh, in other words, he's saying, well, there's a right way and a wrong way to understand the law. Uh, the law is not for the just. The law is not for those who've already been made righteous in Christ. The law is for, you know, these these people who are still far from God, who dishonor God, who who are willfully violating God's commandments, um, and and so uh, yeah, uh, nothing wrong with the law in itself. You just got to understand its proper application. You're talking about the the just. How is someone justified? There's that's that's language that some might call Christianese. <clears throat> That it's it's thrown out there, it's used a lot. Is there a simpler way to understand the process that we understand as justification? Yeah, it's it's simply those who've been made righteous in Christ. Uh, that is to say, um, you, you know, I, I recognize that I have I'm a I'm a sinful person who who cannot uh, earn his way into God's um, favor, uh, but that Jesus has died for my sin. To pay the debt of sin I owe, to 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 ransom me from the debt of sin, 
and 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 take that guilt off of me uh but not only to to remove my guilt but then to bring me into a right relationship with god and that's that's essentially what the word just means there is righteous um i've been made right with god not on my own merit but on the merits of christ and what he did for me when he took my sin upon himself and and gave me his righteousness in place of my my sinfulness so that now i stand just justly rightly before god i i, I stand in the righteousness of christ and um yeah so it's it's really uh the, the word they're just if the law is not for the just it's talking about us those of us who put our faith and trust in christ and have been forgiven and brought into a right relationship with god by faith all right next week we finish chapter one of first timothy what do we have to look forward to well, uh, it's more of Paul's instruction to Timothy, and, uh, and and Paul gets down to naming names of some people he's got some issues with, and, and it'll be interesting to see how Pastor Ken handles that this week. All right. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Dave, for joining us today, and we hope you all have a blessed week and enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much.